Hi, everybody, and thanks for joining me, Colm Holland, on yet another amazing Alchemy Lab podcast session today. Um, as you know, those of you that have been following, and if you haven't yet subscribed, please subscribe to the podcast because you may have missed out on some amazing people who've got incredible things to talk about. And today's guest is no exception whatsoever. Um, her name is Dr. Amy Robbins, and she is a clinical psychologist. She's also a wellness speaker. She's also a professional podcaster, not like me. Um, and she has a, a podcast called Life, Death, and the Space in Between. And one of the things that Amy and I, um, I've, I've actually spoken on Amy's podcast. So if you want to Google that and go and have a look, you can see what amazing conversation we had. We were so excited about what we discussed that we said we should do this again. So that's my primary reason for inviting Dr. Amy back again today. We are both fascinated and committed to the whole topic of personal transformation, of wellness and well-being and true joy and finding true joy in life, which is all of our inheritance and should be something that we can all benefit from in one way or another. And so we, we're both committed to helping others in our own ways to, to find that and to share, then share that with other people. So please join me to welcome Dr. Amy Robbins. Hi, Amy. Hi, great. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to be back in conversation with you again. Same here. Absolutely. I've been really excited about picking up almost really where we, we left off. But this time, um, I want to give a lot more space. Obviously, last time it was me going on uh, quite a bit about my book and, and what I've written and what I, what I believe. Uh, but today I've, I'd love to find out a lot more about you um, at a personal level, but also I'd love to find out um, what it is that you do as a practitioner, particularly as a clinical psychologist. Um, you say, um, and actually, by the way, everybody, um, Amy's based in Chicago, USA. Um, you say that you love talking about the space between, uh, the space between life and death, which is, I find that fascinating. I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody really um, state that before. A space where you say we struggle um, to find most of the, our answers. Um, you also say that if we're brave enough uh, to become and stay conscious which often includes truly facing our fears about death, uh, we can begin to illuminate life. Fascinating topic. Um, what exactly do you mean about the space between life and death? Yeah, I mean, I think it's so multi-layered is this notion of the space between life and death, because I think we often race through that space. You know, we're not paying attention to our lives. We're not conscious. And both from a psychological and spiritual perspective, we think of, of being conscious or unconscious. You know, my training was in really sort of a more traditional Freudian type of therapy that really looks to reveal and uncover all of our unconscious beliefs and our unconscious wishes and fantasies, but also from the perspective of spirituality. And we think about mindfulness and consciousness. It's so important to be consciousness and to be present in our everyday lives. And I think often so much of our 
of our difficulty being present on some level comes from this fear of our mortality of what's going to happen to us when we die. And so it's my belief that when we really face that, and when we think about it, not just from a beginning and an end as the space between life and death, but I also think about it as the space between what happens when we die and perhaps when we even come back again. So it's got so many levels and so many layers to really dig into. And so my journey in, in thinking about the space between doesn't end at death. It really encourages people to go beyond their thinking about a permanent death in the sense that of the physical body dying, but to really think about what happens to our soul and where does our soul go. And even using that knowledge can inform us how to live more presently, purposefully, consciously now. Okay, so let's clear up a few things just for the benefit of everybody. We are not talking about um, subscribing to a particular religious belief. Absolutely not. Absolutely no. not. Okay, so let's get that out of the way. But obviously a lot of people's religious beliefs does really influence their, their view on, on this. So do you notice when people come to you to talk about, I guess they're not coming to you initially to talk about, oh, I'm really frightened of dying. I'm guessing that that's possibly the least thing on their mind. They're, they're probably more coming with, I'm, I'm, I don't know why I always feel so depressed or I'm really struggling with this uh, personal relationship or I feel I just can't move forward in my life to be you know, happy in some way. So, so just what's the progress from from those symptoms for I hate using the word symptoms, but for the right. want of a better word, from presenting those symptoms in a clinical environment to you then ending up talking about life and death and the space in between? How, how does that normally work? Well, I think that it's not, it's not necessarily always present, but oftentimes there's some underlying loss or grief that's been, okay. I don't want to say uh, sort of complicated grief, meaning that it hasn't, you ha people haven't had the opportunity to really work through the grief. Not that you ever get over a loss, but you can move through it. And so oftentimes that's when I'll start exploring. And again, as a therapist, I don't push this belief system on anybody. I, I, I never push this belief system on anybody as a human or as a therapist. I think that I just want to open up the conversation around it, to understand where people are coming from. Because when you start to ask people, oh, have you ever had any spiritual experiences? I don't necessarily mean, which we'll get into my own spiritual experience and how that was, but have you ever had a spiritually transformative experience? Have you ever felt like there was something guiding you bigger than yourself? People start to answer yes to those questions. And then it gives the opportunity to really open up a discussion as to what else might be out there, how we might understand these pieces of our lives, and how we can then use them to help us and inform us and guide us. So sometimes we really, in therapy, may or may not address this. There's a very famous therapist, Irving Yalom, who actually says, if you never talk about death in therapy, then you've never done a real treatment, which is, I think, a really interesting way of thinking about it, because there is this existential 
piece of meaning making that anybody who comes to therapy is typically thinking about, which is what is my meaning? What is my purpose? What does it mean to be here? What does it mean to be in relation to others? Uh, that often comes up at some point in the course of treatment. Okay. I'm reminded, actually, um, from what you just said in that progress, uh, how Carl Jung, Professor Carl Jung, colleague of Freud, of course, he had one particular patient who um, was really resisting that spiritual aspect, the fact that there is anything other than her own logic and that if, if you can't understand stuff by logic, then there's nothing, there's nothing else out there. And that there isn't another dimension to life. Um, but she just happened to mention to him. But strangely enough, she says, I had this dream the other night where I, um, I had this beetle, this sort of carob beetle appear in the dream. And he looks behind her and there at the window, there's this scratching on the window. And he goes over to the window during the therapy session and opens the window and there's a, a carob beetle. <laughs> And he presents the beetle and says, oh, um, is this the beetle from your dream? And then that opened a whole, just a door in her consciousness, um, opened up and said, oh, okay, so the dream and that experience that I just had, those are connected things and there's no logic in that. So do you, do you find, do, do people present... Um, much in the way of um, wanting to understand the synchronicity, the events that are going on in their in their lives um, day to day, and are you able to use that material? Yes and no. I mean, I think that sometimes you know this has been a real shift for me, and and my podcast was sort of my coming out party in this <laughs> sense, where I really started to put out there how much my spirituality has shaped who I am, and so inevitably that has kind of bled into my work. But again, it's not something that if someone doesn't subscribe to, I encourage them. I do encourage, but I don't push it on people. It's more really how I talk about it sort of in my everyday life and what I hope to move towards doing that is going to be more focused on kind of, let's look at those synchronicities. Let's look at how the universe, God, whatever you believe, source, I mean, people use all kinds of names for this, help to put things in your path that you know you you had this experience right with yep. the alchemist yes. um and how we respond to those things and that i think is what becoming conscious really means is do we notice when these synchronicities are there for us how do we then use those to help inform and make the decisions that we're making because they're they're always there for us right i mean you and i talked about this when i interviewed you but sometimes because we're so unconscious in our lives we're going through the day-to-day -day. i know was teasing you we were talking before i got on how i had to get my groceries in the freezer before we had this um you know this interview that you lose when you aren't present you lose the ability to see the synchronicities, which then prevents you from being able to kind of cooperate with the universe in that way. Okay. Now we are in a, a mythical alchemy lab in this particular podcast. So over in the distance, um, you'll be able to hear in the background, I got various, you know, I'm just 
stirring up different, <laughs> different potions and, and things. Um, one of the things that we always talk about is our own personal transformational journey. Because <clears throat> the alchemist is somebody who turns lead into gold, which is a metaphor for turning, you know, the base, probably the things of our lives that we least respect into our best treasure. So I'm going to have to ask you, Amy, I'm terribly sorry about this, but can you fill us in a bit about your own journey, especially coming from such an academic, clinical, psychologist background? Of course. So when I was 18 years old, I lost my aunt, my mom's sister. Very, very, we were very, very close. My family's very, very close. So she was like a mother to me. She passed away from juvenile onset diabetes. So she was old. She was, she wasn't old. She was 48. I don't want to wow. say she was old. Yeah. She was very young, but she was not a child when this happened. Yeah. Um, she was waiting for organ, an organ transplant. And while she was waiting, they they needed to put her through a series of tests because they didn't want to give her organs if her body couldn't sustain it because they weren't sure what the diabetes had done to her body. During that process, they realized that her heart was really weak and she had had numerous heart attacks she didn't even know about. Hmm. So when they went in to repair her heart to make sure it was strong enough for the, for the organ transplants, she died on the table. I was a freshman in college. I was on my own for the first time. I remember getting the call and this was really the first death. I had had a couple of, young, of friends who had passed away, but this was someone really close to me. They were sort of people I went to school with and they were young, so it was tragic. But this really shook me to my core. And in so many ways, as a result of her death, I found myself riddled with more anxiety um, that was manifesting in panic attacks and just this really intense fear about if what happened to her was going to happen to me. I had a lot of identification with her that I, I'm not ill. I don't have diabetes or anything, but I just identified with her in a lot of ways. Uh, fast forward to grad school when I had my first, what I now know was a visit from her. At the time, I thought it was a dream. I, she came to me, she shared with me that she was going to be at the wedding of my cousin, her son, who was, that was coming up shortly. It was very real. Uh, she told me to tell my mom that she doesn't need to cry that just to let her know that she would be there. So I woke up that next morning. I called my mom. I said, I had this crazy dream last night. You were standing at your kitchen sink crying. And Linda, which was my mom's sister, came to me and she said, you don't need to cry. You will, she will be at the wedding. And my mom started crying again and said, I was standing at my kitchen sink last night crying, talking to her, saying, I can't believe you're not going to be at this wedding. And so that was sort of the opening up for yep. me. And I had a wonderful professor at the time, and I went to her and I told her this. And there were more details to this, this visit as well that were confirmed uh, by my uncle because she shared things with me about him as well. And my, my professor, who was also very grounded in science and and theory said, you know, I think this was a visit. I don't think this was a dream. And I think you need to open yourself up and pursue kind of 
your ability to connect in this way. Wow. And so that's how the, the ball started rolling. So did that mean you went and started researching and absorbing yourself when you talk about opening, opening up? Did that result in wanting to discover more about other people's experiences? How did that roll out? I think it really rolled out in terms of me wanting to develop my own ability to connect to something greater. To There was so much comfort in experiencing her as still very alive. She was very, he, I mean, she, you could tell she was healed. She didn't look weak. She was very, She always looked very weak in her life. And she looked very strong and vibrant. And she said, my body is healed. And I actually realized only recently that I had had an earlier experience where she came to me, but at the time really thought it was a dream. That was shortly after she had passed. And I can still visualize it as clearly today as it happened then, which is, as I've learned, really shows that it was a visit and not a dream because our dreams typically are harder to remember and hold on to in that way. Mm -hmm. But I started exploring mediumship and really opening myself up to communicating with people's loved ones who had passed. And I started experiencing things in sessions that were a little stronger and a little bit more um, profound, perhaps, from people's loved ones who had also passed away. And then I worked with a woman for two years who was a medium, really training myself, <clears throat> excuse me, to open myself up. And then did an internship, and I use quotes because I called it that, and just saw people who were interested in having readings and practiced. And then I sort of realized it wasn't the path I wanted to go down. So after all that, figured, you know what, this, isn't, this really isn't it for me. But I'm assuming, and I can understand why that wouldn't be for you, and, and I think you... you, you have an enormous amount to offer just as a clinical psychologist anyway. But how has it informed other, other outcomes as a result of you being open? Um, what other outcomes are you able to bring when you're working with people? What other, do you find you, you have knowledge that you, that they're not expressing, that you have an, an understanding that maybe they can't see? beyond beyond it being somebody visiting beyond the grave. Right. You know, it's now become so difficult to separate out what is experience versus what is intuition at this point. You know, okay. I've been doing this work for 15 years now. Okay. I will sometimes have sort of flashes of things where I get a vision of something that feels like it's just not maybe relevant in this lifetime, uh, sort of maybe a past life experience. I never say, I think you had a past life in blah, blah, blah. I always sort of couch it in, you know, have you ever, do you have the experience of feeling this way historically? And when have you, when do you remember that experience beginning? So I try to use it in that way as a way to open up a conversation rather than saying, well, I think you had a past life where you were um, in ancient Egypt and, you know, you were the Pharaoh or something along those lines, <laughs> but really trying to just open to slowly open people up 
or I'll really have a sense that whatever they're experiencing did not originate in this lifetime. And so I'll try to explore that with them again, not in, I think this was a past life, but really kind of trying to understand more holistically how these pieces fit together. So on a personal level and your own thinking about your own relationship with another dimension to life from the time on that, that you first encountered your aunt after she passed, what, what changes in your own day-to-day life and experience have you discovered um, has has this made a you know a serious impact on on your own well-being your own sense of worth etc etc i think it's been probably the most profound experience of my life in that i am no longer anxious it's very very rare rare that i feel anxiety and if i do it is so fleeting and I'm able to recognize it because I can bring myself right back to the present moment and know that there is something larger out there. And I think that there's just a sense of trusting and knowing that allows whatever happens to sort of unfold in time. So that does not mean I'm a passive person. I'm by no means a passive person. I'm very, very engaged in life. But I trust that even when things are difficult or feel like a struggle, that ultimately it's for my higher good and it will work out for me. And when I say higher good, I really mean my soul. Yeah, I think when we think about being in alignment with our soul, things are just easier. Life is just easier. There's not that battle, that struggle, that constant kind of tension and the push-pull and the complication of life. Whereas it seems like, you know, some people talk about it as being in a flow state. It just seems that things fall into place. And I think, again, because you're paying attention to the synchronicities, it's easier to see how things are falling into place. And, and you, when things are out of place, for, for me, what I attribute that to is just my soul needing to learn and grow. And so how can I use these experiences to help my soul learn and grow in that way, rather than to resist and fight against it? Because I think when we do that, one, we're not in alignment with our soul. We're usually in an ego state. And, and, and then life's just so much harder than it needs to be. Okay. <clears throat> Let's talk about love for a moment. <laughs> so you, you've seen a lot of people on, on the couch, as it were, mm-hmm. in your therapy sessions. And I'm guessing that one of the topics you nearly always get around to is their sense of, of being loved, their understanding of love, the nature of love, in, in their life. Do you, want, do you want to just share a bit from your own perspective about your sense of being loved and how vital that is to, to existence? 
I think about it often as it comes up as, am I worthy of love? That's okay. usually the question that comes up. It's about worthiness and love. And I think that when we feel like we are not worthy of love, we feel like we are not worthy of anything in this life. And so when we can, and that comes really often from a sense of our own childhood and upbringing and how we're raised and how we are loved by our parents. And if you're loved unconditionally and you feel that wholeheartedly, that's a huge leg up in this world, right? And then when I've experienced speaking with people on my podcast who have had experience, near-death experiences where mm -hmm. they report, the, the thing that usually is the most transformative for them is this feeling of unconditional love. And so, yeah, it's so <laughs> fascinating, right? And so when we think of that and we think about giving love and we think about what are, are there often conditions in which I'm giving love? Because usually with most people, particularly if you didn't have the experience of being loved unconditionally, you were going to have conditions in, in terms of being sure. loved and loving yeah. others. Yeah. And so all that does is create this cycle of, of unworthiness and and, and then when you have this, you know, when we think about how this all kind of weaves and ties together, and it's not simple, but when we think about being unworthy in love, how that then shows up in every single other aspect of your life. Mm -hmm. And then we think about what you're attracting and you can start to think about the law of attraction and how you are manifesting that unworthiness in other areas of your life and attracting that you don't deserve you know, usually it's, it's a good relationship or abundance or, you know, I mean, the just list well -being. Usually, just well -being. Yeah, overall yeah. well-being, joy, contentment, all of those things, because yeah. I really do think they come back to this sense of, am I loved or am I not? Am I lovable or am I unlovable? Well, you know, because of the podcast I did with you when you were interviewing me that um, one of the things that I talk about quite a bit in my book, The Secret of the Alchemist, is how through working from a very young age, age of 18, right through to now, um, all these years later, um, well, yeah, I'm just trying to think here, yeah, 50 years later, it's been a long journey. But um, for me, the the essence of acceptance of myself of my unworthiness and i won't go into the detail of that now but um because i spell it out quite clearly in, in my book but but how when i opened myself to to love it was more for me it was more than just um, a logical process of thinking well i must be okay because of this or i must be okay for that what i found i had to do was and we talked about the unconscious earlier. Mm -hmm. um, but what I found I had to do was to sort of clear all of my preconceptions about myself in a way and think of love as not so much a being, but a power, an actual force, an actual an entity. You know, like you said earlier, lots of people call it different things. I try not to give it names. I try to call it love mm -hmm. um, because to avoid confusion of what this thing is or what this force is in my life. And I, what I've discovered 
and I'm sure this is the experience of lots of, of people that come to you for help, is that when you embrace, allow that love to embrace those inner parts that we ourselves despise, those parts of ourselves that we previously regarded as weak or our failings or the things that let us down or the things that, that trigger and make us want to put conditions on it. When we let love embrace those things, that's when it actually becomes like a, a magic power, a transformative power, and it actually becomes our greatest treasure. Um, and the moment that we actually accept that our weakness is probably one of our most valuable possessions, that is like stepping, you know, to like C.S. Lewis, it's like going through the wardrobe into Narnia. Mm -hmm. There's another world on the other side of that wardrobe. Okay, it's not all straightforward and there's going to be battles to be fought and so on. But the difference is that we've now got this power on our side. And in, in Paolo Kahlo, in his book, in, in The Alchemist, the original, he says that when we make that choice to let the universe to, to allow love to transform us, all the power of the universe conspires to make that happen. And so I know you don't push the spiritual on, on your clients when you're, when you're working with them, but you must, I'm guessing that you must see transformational things happening as as people open up, as they begin to accept the fact that they may not love themselves unconditionally, but love accepts them unconditionally. That, that, that's a whole, you know, new dimension. Um, and that I accept them on, you know, that they have the experience oftentimes in therapy of feeling that love hopefully, I hope from me, because there is a process as a therapist of literally falling in love with your patients and not in a um, erotic love, oh. in a very, yeah. <clears throat> for me, I can only compare it to like a maternal love, you know, having children yes. or a, a, just a love of the human experience and the human struggle and the respect for that. Yes. And so when people often say, well, what's your technique or, you know, what type of therapy do you practice? I, I really practice the therapy of, of, of love. I mean, it sounds kind of hokey to say it, and I've never even thought of it in the way that I'm talking to you about it now. But when I've seen people transform, a huge part of the transformation is the fact that I believe in them and mm. I care so deeply for them mm. and for their well-being that they begin to internalize that and see that in their self, themselves, even if those words are never, ever, ever spoken in our work together, right? It's, it's, I've never said I love you to no. a patient, no. but they know and feel that love because yeah. when you feel it, you can't you can't unfeel it. You can't deny that it's there. Well, we can feel it now, Amy. So even though we've got lots of technology between us and different screens and lots of thousands of miles of cable, um, it's obvious from your whole demeanor and the very core of your heart 
that that's how you feel so to be in a room with you and working with you i i can i can see how that um there was a guy called thomas merton who was a contemplative <coughs> monk he was quite a groundbreaking guy um, and wrote a lot about the his understanding of buddhism and how that influenced his own christian mm. prayer um, as, as a trappist monk and um one of the things that happened to him there's an, actually a monument on a corner of a, a street somewhere it's it's in my book I, I i talk about it. i won't mention it where it is now but there is a street somewhere and it says on this spot on this day at this time thomas merton the author the famous author had a transformative experience not that he felt transformed but he saw other people ordinary people just walking down the street as transformed beings mm. that they were an expression of god in his mind that they were spiritual beings but they were also the most treasured and the most valuable thing that there is in the universe so rather than walking down the street and just thinking oh the streets are a bit crowded today oh i hope that nobody's going to get too near me or oh gosh you know they're not behaving very sensibly and you know all the all the judgments that we so often make when we're out in in public he abandoned that and he just had this incredible inspiration and that's something that i've been trying to practice actually um especially with covid around mm -hmm. is you know not not to project our fear and particularly with covid our fear of death onto the right. behavior of others and if we can do that then i think so well and um, i think oh go ahead no, no i was no. just gonna say i think to your point like this is a practice right like it and and i i think that people sometimes get caught up in this belief that when you have these spiritual experiences, these spiritual awakenings, these whatever you want to call them, spiritually transformative experiences, that then you're walking around like all the time in this blissful, content, happy, wonderful state. And that's just not true. You know, I have moments where I get frustrated with my husband and frustrated with my kids and, you know, I'm freaking out a little bit about this whole homeschooling, you know, remote yes. learning, whatever you want. It's not homeschooling. I've been. I've been schooled in, it's not homeschooling, it's remote learning, but that there become more moments of your life that are filled with that presence, that love, that overwhelming sense of alignment with your soul, however we're going to define it. And those become more of the moments in your life. And then you, be, you begin to really have a beautiful life because you start to piece these moments of love and joy and contentment together. It's not that it's always like that. It's that we have more moments of that than we do the other. You are a beautiful person, Amy. Um, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Did you have, um, we're almost out of time. Um, Bummer, this was so fun. I know. I like being could... on this side of the mic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, the, yeah, no, the pressure's all on me today. Um, <laughs> but let's, um, do you want to um, ease us out um, with any uh, thoughts or, or a, a passage from a book? What are you reading at the moment? Is there anything you want to share with us? Well, so I was going to share, I always have this book, The Untethered Soul, on my nightstand. Um, and in it, 
you know, one of the things he says in this, in this chapter on contemplating death is the question is, are you going to wait until that last moment to let death be your teacher? So that was what I wanted to, to bring up. But then as we were talking, I remembered a quote that I'm going to probably butcher because I'm not looking directly at it. But it's, I think it was Einstein who said, you know, the main question that you have to ask yourself is, is the universe a friendly or hostile place? Because that question then guides so much of how you see the world. And I think that that, that quote just in what we were talking about today just seemed relevant. So I'll kind of leave you with those two pieces of things. Both wonderfully inspirational <laughs> and something we definitely could benefit from by you know, going on from the rest of our day today after listening to you. Thank you so much. Uh, Amy, for spending the time in between grocery shopping and <laughs> kids schooling. Um, wonderful that you have this ordinary life, and but you're living it in such an extraordinary way, which is truly inspiring. So thank you so much for joining me today. I'm sure this isn't going to be our last conversation. Um, I'm sure one of us at least will find an excuse to, to jump on another podcast in the not too distant future, I hope. Definitely. Thank you so much. Blessings. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. So, Amy, um, one of the things that um, I'm sure lots of people are, are going to be asking after this podcast is, how can I get in contact with Dr. Amy uh, Robin, so where should they go? Where do you want them to go? So you can go to my website. It's www.dramyrobbins.com. You can follow me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Amy Robbins. I'm on Facebook, but not really on Facebook. So don't message me there. Otherwise, you won't get a response and then you'll probably get frustrated. Um, also, you can listen to my podcast. It's Life, Death, and the Space Between. And it's everywhere podcasts are right now, which seems to be a lot of places. And I'm getting ready to roll out some courses and, and some things along those lines. So if you subscribe to my newsletter on my website, you'll get information on some of that as well. Okay, so keep us in the loop when those happen. And I'll be sure um, I am on Facebook quite actively. <laughs> so I'll make sure I post it on Facebook and direct everybody to in the right direction as well. Okay, thank okay. you. Thank you, Amy.